This is Unfilter, episode 309 for May 14th, 2020. What I heard from this more than anything else was Dr. Fauci ringing an alarm bell. I mean, loud and clear, saying that if we don't ramp up testing, if we don't get a national program on contact tracing, and if we don't follow appropriate social distancing guidelines, then the next wave of this thing is going to cause many, many unnecessary deaths. Hello, friends, and welcome into episode 309 of your Corona Cracking Cast. My name is Chris, and this week, I bear the scars of frustrating Zoom and other horrible video meetings. I know you're feeling my pain. What was once restricted to just something I did at work has now infected all of my life. (laughs) And the whole can you hear me now thing, it's real. That's been my week. But I got to admit, my background game is kind of on point, you know? I really got to dial in now. This week, though, the overall national and maybe even worldwide conversation continues to shift daily in the land of the lockdown here in Washington State. But it seems that that conversation is still dominated by what might be. Researchers at the University of Washington now say more than 137,000 people could die nationwide by early August. They are warning about the potential dangers of more people leaving their homes in the weeks ahead, including in hard-hit California. Now, we're not really actually seeing anything yet that necessarily indicates that the most earliest places that opened up are having an explosion in infection rates, but the new models out of the University of Washington suggest it could happen. But one thing that's become much more clear, something we've got a lot more definition around this week, is just how deep the economic hole we're digging might be. Well, that's right. I mean, I think that we know that the economy is suffering tremendously. Another 3.2 million today, that makes it 33 million or something in the last uh, two months. This is the largest economic shock that we've faced uh, in a long, long time. Huge shock, actually. And we'll get into more of that and why it's different than any other recession that this nation or probably the entire world has ever faced. We talk about the Great Recession. We talk about the Great Depression. We talk about the global financial crisis. None of those playbooks will apply to the COVID crash. But we have so much to get into today. I have I have some clips that I collected from some hearings that I think are pretty important that you get some highlights from. I have some important show updates that I want to share with you, an interesting signal from the Federal Reserve about negative interest rates and those major bits of the election that are falling into place. And and no, no, I'm not talking about old handy Joe. I mean, maybe that's going to come up soon, but I actually think that story is starting to peter out. I think they're working on a much bigger takedown of old Joe. But until more develops around handy Joe, I'm going to respect Nancy's wishes, and I'm going to stick to the facts. And uh, the fact that Joe Biden is Joe Biden. Yeah, Joe's Joe, right? Right? (laughs) So we'll look at the legal case hurtling towards Joe Biden. But I say we should jump right into the COVID-19 stuff because that's really the bulk of what I want to talk to you about today, as has been since the show has come back. And 
there is a lot to say around the whole White House hit hard story that's been circulating for days. Thank you, Mr. President. Almost everyone, as you noted, in the Rose Garden is wearing a mask today. Why haven't you required everyone at the White House to wear masks before now? You hear the uh, the dramatic music that they've added. I'm going to back it up just for a beat so you can hear that. Just pay attention to that dramatic music. Why haven't you required everyone at the White House to wear masks before now? The mask has become the big thing. Early on in this, it was ventilators. Now it's all about the masks. Well, if they're a certain distance from me or if they're a certain distance from each other, they do. Uh, in the case of me, I'm not I'm not close to anybody. I'd like to be close to these two gentlemen. They're hardworking, great men. But what? I, let's stop for just a second here and take an abstract. In your mind, mentally picture Bush Jr. wearing a mask like this or President Obama wearing a mask that they're talking about. What is the imagery that that sends to the nation? What is the message that that sends? I think it sends an air of panic. I think it says that not even the president is safe, not even daddy is safe. One of the things that I think Trump is particularly good at is sussing those types of hard to quantify emotional things out. He's very Hollywood about that. And I think he's very intentionally not wearing that mask. And it'll be interesting to see if he ever catches anything. Um, but it has it has really come to the forefront this week because parts of the White Horse, White Horse, I like that. Parts of the White Horse Task Force <laughs> are self-quarantining now. So you have Dr. Anthony Fauci, the face of this pandemic here in the United States, imposing a self-quarantine on himself for a couple of weeks. This kind of flies in the face of the signals the president has been giving all week, which is that he, we need to transition to greatness, as he tweeted, tur- turning the page in the country to looking to open the economy. Ha <laughs> ha, got you now. <laughs> that won't be happy, will it? Ha ha ha. They're almost giddy about it, aren't they? Uh, the irony is, though, is... Trump has had to respond to this in a way that's a bit embarrassing. Now, Vice President Pence and Trump won't be working in the same room together. Overnight, the White House making the historic decision to separate the president and vice president. Senior officials confirming President Trump and Vice President Pence will be kept apart due to coronavirus concerns, saying the two will maintain distance from each other in the immediate future. We can talk on the phone. The temporary separation comes after a Pence aide tested positive last week. ABC News has learned the vice president spent Monday away from the Oval Office wearing a mask while working in a neighboring building. Uh-oh, don't let Trump see that. As the White House adopts new safety measures. Just about everybody I've seen today has worn a mask. The president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, seen wearing a mask during a Rose Garden news conference. And I wish you'd write honestly about it, but unfortunately, you choose not to do so. Of course, he's got to get the dig in there. Um, It's interesting to see them doing this. And so I thought, well, maybe with this social distancing they're doing, that the White House task force wouldn't have to testify to the Senate. But oh, no, my friends, they did indeed. And I got some great clips for you. So we'll get to those uh, in a moment. But first, I want to talk about that model that was teased earlier in the show about showing that things are possibly going to go up. Like the number right now, we're as we get here, we're we're really close to a, a new echelon, you know, much, much, much higher than what the Trump administration thought would be our worst case scenario. As I record to you tonight, for you tonight, um, probably some point by tomorrow or the day after, we will reach eighty four thousand that have died in the U.S. It's horrible, and I think you know 
when we talk about how it's just as dangerous as the flu, that's such bullshit. The flu doesn't attack your lungs like this thing does. The flu doesn't spread like this thing does. Now, I think you could also argue that maybe we should have been taking the flu more seriously because whatever I got back in early January, whatever that was, which I think would just be classified as a flu, was really rough. And I have been through some rough medical shit in my life. I almost died a couple years ago. And I, I spent seven days in the hospital with my entire midsection split open. So I know what it's like to go through some shit. And I'll tell you, whatever I got back in January was rough as heck. And I don't know what it was, but if that was just the flu, then we should be talking more seriously about the flu. And these models show a serious increase in risk. And I want to talk to you about this for a moment because I want to propose to you that opening back up absolutely 100%, no doubt about it, comes with risk, but it is a risk that we must be willing to take. So let's get to the projected death toll from the coronavirus, which has gone up again, according to a widely used model. Researchers at the University of Washington now say more than 137,000 people could die nationwide by early August. They are warning about the potential dangers of more people leaving their homes in the weeks ahead, including in hard-hit California. Jamie Ucas reports now from Sierra Madre near Los Angeles. This San Diego beach rental shop is one of several California businesses that welcome back customers this weekend. I've been here for 23 years and I feel perfectly safe. Further up the coast, restless Los Angeles residents also left home to explore newly reopened parks and trails. I don't think once the weather gets nice, this lockdown is going to work anymore. Um, our county, where I'm at, according to the mobility data, people visiting parks is up 30% right now, above normal, like pre-COVID levels, <laughs> right? You follow what I'm saying there? Poor people are going to parks more than they ever have right now because so much stuff's shut down. People are out and about. However, that said, honestly, I see most people being pretty smart about it. I got to give credit to my fellow citizens here. They're wearing the mask. They're doing the social distancing. And it's just automatic. I, I've taken very, very, very few trips out and about since the quote-unquote lockdown. Uh, the state of Washington is technically at a stay-at-home order until the end of May. So I'm, I'm still technically under one. Um, but we are trying to get a garden going at home, as I bet some of you are out there as well. And so we've had to take a few trips out to the local uh, seed starter, you know, the starter store and stuff like that to get just dirt and pots and plants and all that kind of stuff. And it's even there, people are absolutely following the best practices and guidelines they can. I think one of the things that hasn't really been properly appreciated in all of these models that have been kicked around saying that all these people were going to die or all these bad things would happen. Nice fucking model! Is that people are adaptable. They adapt to the change and they keep on rolling. So I actually have to be honest with you, and I think this is my personal bias having some family members that are struggling right now. I kind of like this. I like seeing this. I like seeing that people are willing to take a little risk for their liberty and that people are being smart about it. They're not being careless about it because at some point we've got to get back to normal, especially as the weather gets nice here in the Pacific Northwest. People are going to go out. We live with six months, seven months of horrible, oppressive, gray, wet, dark weather. So people psychologically need to get out when the sun comes out here. It's happening right now. 
And that's why it's been so disheartening to see the snitching. Have you guys seen this? I don't know what's going on in your area, so I'll just share what's going on here in my local county. So you guys probably have heard me mention that I have a couple family members that are in their own small businesses, and they're both struggling in their own unique ways. I might talk about that more later. But here in the state of Washington, there's a little town called Snohomish, and the main street of downtown Snohomish is something really special. It's on a riverfront, and it's also a historical town, as we call it. Now, I know that those across the pond and people who are listening around the world will find this funny, but to us here in the States, we consider these historic old buildings because they were built in the 1800s. And so Main Street is a bunch of buildings built in the 1800s. It's really something. And I was fortunate enough years ago to work down there as part of my day job. And when I worked down there, there was this old guy. He was old back then, and this was more than a decade ago. He's still in business. Uh, This old guy was a Trump supporter in the last election. And the, the tune in the town changed when that happened. Because most of the town was progressive except for this guy in his barbershop. And so I, re- I remember it standing out to me because he was one of the few people you'd see in the neck, this neck of the woods that had a Trump hat. You go outside Snohomish Main Street, sh- yeah, Trump, Trump posters, Trump hats. Yeah, absolutely. It's a hick, it's a hick area. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. But you go down to Main Street, well, that's where the progressives lived. And so this guy stood out like a sore thumb. Well, he's been doing this um, since before I was alive. He's been running this barbershop. And... This last week, he decided he needed to reopen to prevent his business from collapsing and putting him out of work. The guy's got to be in his late 70s, mid-80s. I mean, really, maybe even older. I I can't even tell anymore. And I was so disappointed when I found out that nearly 160 of my local county residents reported this old guy for opening his shop, for trying to keep his business alive. And I I think in part it's because he was a Trump supporter, because when his image ran in the papers, it was him with his Trump cap. And this snitching is so weird to see. It's neighbor versus neighbor, you guys. It's neighbor versus neighbor. Well, who do we we turn to when it's neighbor versus neighbor? The authorities. It's just where they want us. And I don't mean to put a bunch of bacon in on this, but think about this. Think about the state of affairs we have come to now. We have turned against our neighbor— And the problem is the snitches did it under the assumption that they'd never be found out. But when it comes to government websites and leaking information, it's almost a foregone conclusion. A list posted online shows the names and phone numbers of every single person who's reported violations of Governor Inslee's stay-at-home order. What? And now they're the ones being targeted by the very same violators. Camera 7's Gary Horker spoke with one of those people whose information was revealed. And she says she never realized it would be public. Now she's getting death threats. Well, now I wish I hadn't snitched. And people are... When you're angry about this lockdown, when you're angry about the steps that your governor has taken that you think don't represent you, and I want to remind you, there are areas of Washington that have had very, very, very little struggles. Um, Eastern, Western Washington's really been where predominantly all of our COVID-19 cases have been. When you look at Eastern Washington or even just off into farmland, in some areas there's been zero. So some people are very upset about this and they need somewhere to direct their anger. 
And so when you show up on a leaked snitch list, yeah, people are going to be really pissed off. And I'm not condoning that behavior, but I wonder where, where do we draw the line at the neighbor versus neighbor thing? At what point are we setting a precedent that just is so dangerous that it becomes more dangerous than the virus itself? Have we already crossed that threshold? I'd like to know what you think. Unfilter.show slash Discord. I'd really like to get your opinion on that. On the neighbor versus neighbor thing. Have we, have we, crossed a, have we set a precedent? Have we crossed a threshold now that is dangerous? Perhaps very dangerous? Imagine now some sort of natural disaster. The Pacific Northwest is on the fault lines for massive earthquakes. If neighbors are against each other, will we help each other in those situations? I just think it's so short-sighted. When we zoom out and we look at the political machinations that are beginning to happen, one of the things that stands out this week is the Senate hearings that brought in Dr. Fauci and other members of Trump's Corona Task Force. And I have a couple of clips I want to play for you, but unfortunately, I'm not going to play a lot because only in a couple of instances was the audio very usable. This has been an ongoing problem during the whole lockdown work from home thing is nobody has their home audio situation figured out at all. So everybody really has really bad audio. And I've, I've left a lot of stuff on the editing room floor, if you will, the proverbial floor, because I didn't want to play it in the show. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. This is what 85, 95% of today's hearing sounded like. Uh, we, we have, have plans, plans to test Additionally, 220,000 more residents by the end of this month. There was lots of feedback issues, lots of echo. But the best moments in this hearing, and you'll hear about this a little bit, the headlines will be, Rand Paul slams, Rand Paul attacks, Rand Paul X, Dr. Fauci. This is what's getting a lot of attention as I record right now. But I want to actually give you the substance of the conversation. And Rand Paul, he really pushed on the whole antibody confusion that's come up. There's been a lot of questioning in the media if once you've been exposed, if you have an immunity. And Rand thinks that this is dangerous, the speculation, because it's extremely likely, based on historical infections, that you do have a defense against it. You have antibodies and you do have a defense against it. And if that is, in fact, true, then you are a special kind of worker, my friend. If you've gotten the big Rona and gotten better and you got the antibodies, that means you can go back to work and you're not going to get it again. That's actually kind of important, say, in military installations, even meatpacking plants. And so Rand kind of felt like it was important that workers know they're safe and they're likely going to be fine before they go back to work if they've gotten it before. You've stated publicly that you'd bet at all that survivors of coronavirus have some form of immunity. Can you help set the record straight that the scientific record, as it is being accumulated, is supportive that infection with coronavirus likely leads to some form of immunity? Dr. Fauci. Yep. Thank you for the question, Senator Paul. Yes, you're correct that I have said that given what we know about the recovery from viruses such as coronaviruses in general, or even any infectious disease, with very few exceptions, that when you have antibody present, it very likely indicates a degree of protection. Now, let's pause here. So many things have gotten nuanced to heck and back that I think it's important we talk about this. What Fauci is saying is, yeah, 
Rand, it is likely that you'll have an antibody that will protect you. It's very likely, Rand, but we don't know it 100% yet. The science doesn't tell us this yet. Think about this, too, for a moment. This conversation is perhaps even more interesting because Rand Paul himself, a doctor, and coronavirus survivor. (laughs) So he's walking around like cog of the walk because he's had this thing, no mask required. And on top of that, guys, he's got a real brilliant lockdown beard going. If you haven't checked out Rand Paul's new lockdown beard, you got to go hook your peepers on that thing. I think it's in the semantics of how this is expressed. When you say, has it been formally proven by long-term natural history studies, which is the only way that you can prove, one, is it protective, which I said and would repeat, is likely that it is, but also, what is the degree or titer of antibody that gives you that critical level of protection, and what is the durability? So Fauci, as a scientist, is down in the nuance. How much protection do you get? Does it evolve and you have to change that protection? What is the particular aspect of the antibody that actually protects you? Have we studied this? Those are the things that would make Dr. Fauci say, yeah, you're good once you got it, if we know those things. But the media, the media is so bad at nuance. They're so bad. So that to them equals antibodies no good. If you got it, you're going to get it again. As I've often said, and I again repeat, you can make a reasonable assumption that it would be protective. But natural history studies over a period of months to years will then tell you definitively if that's the case. Yeah, you're not going to know until you've had months to years of studying it to see if those have have been exposed to it once get exposed to it again. That's the only way science, as it is, as a verb, will be satisfied. Until years have gone by to prove it. So this whole speculation about the antibody stuff, just shut the hell up. Because we won't know for years from now. Chances are, it's solid. But we don't know, and we won't know. We won't know for a long time. So shut up and just proceed. And these these little debates we fall into where we don't know anything, and the scientists don't even know yet. And yet, we sit there and we ant screw it (laughs) until the end of time. And I want to talk about the reopening because Rand makes a pretty good point in here. And one of the reasons I'm playing him here is because he had the best audio overall. By the time Rand was doing his questions, they were asking the panelists on Zoom or whatever they were using to start muting their microphones. And it made all the difference. So Rand asks and makes a good case about applying a one-size-fits-all to the reopening approach specifically for schools. I think he really kind of has a good point here. One thing that was left out of that discussion is uh, mortality. I mean, shouldn't we at least be discussing what the mortality of children is? Um, this is for Dr. Fauci as well. You know, the mortality between 0 and 18 in the New York data approaches 0. It's not going to be absolutely 0, but it almost approaches 0. Between 18 and 45, the mortality in New York was uh, 10 out of 100,000. So really, we do need to be thinking about that. We need to uh, observe with an open mind what went on in Sweden, where the kids kept 
going to school. The mortality per capita in Sweden is actually less than France, less than Italy, less than Spain, less than Belgium, less than the Netherlands, about the same as Switzerland. But basically, I don't think there's anybody arguing that what happened in Sweden is an unacceptable result. I think people are intrigued by it, and we should be. I don't think any of us are certain when we do all these modelings. There have been more people wrong with modeling than right. We're opening up a lot of economies. Let's stop there. Do you think that is a fair assessment? I think it might be. I, I didn't like do a. I don't know how you would. You'd have to. You'd have to have access to all the original models. But I think he might have a fair point. When we look at the model prediction rate so far, I think it has been more wrong than right. And I and. I'm not I'm not asserting this as a fact. I'm asking you if, if you think that's true too because this is an observation. I don't think we can get any better than that, but I'm curious if you have the same observation. Modelings. There have been more people wrong with modeling than right. We're opening up a lot of economies around the around the U.S., and I hope that people who are predicting doom and gloom and saying, oh, we can't do this, there's going to be a surge, will admit that they were wrong if there isn't a surge, because I think that's what's going to happen. In rural states, we never really reached any sort of pandemic levels in Kentucky and other states. We have less deaths in Kentucky than we have in, a, in, an, in an average flu season. It's yeah. so not to say this isn't deadly. Right. And I want to double down on that as well. I mean, even here in Washington, where the original pandemic struck it, for a brief period of time was the hot zone in America. And even even here in certain regions of, of the of our state, it's almost non-existent. It, it is less influential than the flu has been. I, I, actually, I'll tell you more on that in a moment. I want to let him continue. Kentucky than we have in, a, in, an, in an average flu season. It's not to say this isn't deadly, but really outside of New England, we've had a relatively benign course for this virus nationwide. And I think the one size fits all that we're going to have a national strategy and nobody's going to go to school is kind of ridiculous. We really ought to be doing it school district by school district. And the power needs to be dispersed because people make wrong predictions. And really the history of this, when we look back, will be of wrong prediction after wrong prediction after wrong prediction, starting with uh, Ferguson in England. Oh. So I think we ought to have a, a little bit of humility in, in our uh, belief that we know what's best for the economy. And as much as I respect you, Dr. Fauci, I don't think you're the end all. I don't think you're the one person that gets to make a decision. This was the moment that has been labeled controversial by the media, that Megan McCain felt she must defend Dr. Fauci, I don't think you're the end all. I don't think you're the one person that gets to make a decision. We can listen to your advice, but there are people on the other side saying there's not going to be a surge and that we can safely open the economy. And the facts will bear this out. But if we keep kids out of school for another year, what's going to happen is the poor and underprivileged kids who don't have a parent that's able to teach them at home are not going to learn for a full year. And I think we ought to look at the Swedish model and we ought to look at letting our kids get back to school. I think it's a huge mistake if we don't open the schools in the fall. Yeah, and I think one of, the, one of the differences with the quote-unquote Swedish model is they're not really concerned about a round two in the fall. But Fauci did respond to Rand's rather bold statements. Mr. Chairman, can I respond to that even though there are only 32 seconds left? Uh, yes, and you might make it clear whether or not you suggested that uh, we shouldn't go back to school in the fall. Well, uh, first of all, uh, Senator Paul, uh, thank you for your comments. I, I have never made myself out to be the end-all and only voice of this. I'm a scientist, a physician, and a public health official. I give advice according to the best scientific evidence. There are a number of other people who come into that and give advice that are more related to the things that you spoke about. 
about the need to get the country back open again and economically. I don't give advice about economic things. I don't give advice about anything other than public health. I think Fauci's been very respectful. Rand kind of hit, hit him sort of hard and maybe even for things that weren't necessarily fair when it comes to like setting policy about school reopenings. And Fauci responds in a respectful way. So got to give him credit for that. Second of all, I think it's important you process what the man is saying here. He doesn't give advice on reopening the economy. He gives medical advice. Now, the thing about that observation, which he has just backed up, is that the media never really plays anyone who might be an economic expert. They don't really pay attention, with the exception of things like CNBC, to people that are forecasting and modeling what the hell is going to happen to us if we don't reopen all of these states. They're only playing the medical side. Now, you could argue that lives matter more than economy, and I would argue that you're being small-minded and you're not considering how changing fundamental businesses around people would alter their lives in such a negative way that... I hate to say it. I hate to say it. Many of them... Many of them, like that old man that I was talking about with the barbershop will die. He, that old man is being forcibly quarantined, even though he is not currently showing symptoms. They're going to forcibly quarantine him and shut down his business. He thinks that it'll be the end of his business and that it will die. That business is older than I am. It's the only thing that man has. He's not married anymore. His wife's dead. He doesn't have kids that pay him any attention. If his business goes away, he's going to die. So I, it is so callous to say that lives are more important than the economy because it is ignorant. It pretends that the two things are not interconnected so tightly. <laughs> it's disconnected from reality. It's understandable from politicians who have been full-time politicians for their entire life and have never run a business, have never had to work a job. But for everybody else outside that category, what the hell's the matter with you? Wake the hell up. About economic things, I don't give advice about anything other than public health. So I wanted to respond to that. The second thing is that you use the word we should be humble about what we don't know. And I think that falls under the fact that we don't know everything about this virus. And we really better be very careful, particularly when it comes to children. Um, before he gets to the children stuff, I think it's... I think it's so great to hear Dr. Fauci say this because be humble. We don't know everything about this virus has been my mantra for weeks now. And I think that's so important to remember. Anything could change with this son of a bitch. And I, I love that he's saying it here is be humble. And he's kind of in a way he's throwing it right back at Rand at the same time because Rand was kind of thrown at him. And, and Fauci, not only is he being polite, not only is he being well-spoken, but he's without being a dick turning it right back on Rand with the humble thing. Humble about what we don't know. And I think that falls under the fact that we don't know everything about this virus. And we really better be very careful, particularly when it comes to children. Because the more and more we learn, we're seeing things about what this virus can do that we didn't see from the studies in China or in Europe. For example, right now, children presenting with COVID-19. COVID Isn't that weird? I mean, Dr. Fauci, head of the nation's medical scientific response and information conduit to the president of the United States, got the name wrong. 
How does that happen? Right now, children presenting with COVID-19. COVID Isn't that weird? I, I'm thinking, what I'm thinking here is, this isn't how they refer to it internally. Because if you've ever worked at any operation where you got your own internal um, slang, executive leadership, sometimes ELT, um, you got these terms, right? The CCDM, these, these names for things. And you say them so often that they just become second nature. So you would never screw that up because you'd said it so many times, right? You'd never screw that up. But if you've been calling the coronavirus maybe like the novel corona something, 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 like the military calls it, and you only refer to it as COVID-19 publicly, then maybe you screw that up? <laughs> I just thought that was so weird that Dr. Fauci called it COVID-16. Right now, children presenting with COVID-19 COVID who actually have a very strange inflammatory syndrome, very similar to Kawasaki syndrome. I think we better be careful if we are not cavalier in thinking that children are completely immune to the deleterious effects. So again, you're right in the numbers that children in general do much, much better than adults and the elderly and particularly those with underlying conditions. But I am very careful and hopefully humble in knowing that I don't know everything about this disease. And that's why I'm very reserved in making broad predictions. Thank you. I like how he handled that a lot. And I think it's a fair assessment. And I think Rand made some good points. But at the end of the day, we just don't know enough yet. Even though we are so far into this, we really don't know much. I think staying humble about what we don't know has been a flaw that our leadership has demonstrated over and over again in so many different ways. Um, but maybe we'll talk about that at some point down the road. In the meantime, uh, there was an interesting bit that Fauci had here about vaccines. Testing, tracing. And then there's this kind of addendum to that is eventually when we have a vaccine, vaccine. But why so much focus on the vaccine? Why so much? Why isn't it like the why not call it, a, for example, why not call it the Corona shot, COVID-19 shot equated to the flu? Why call it a vaccine? Why focus so much attention on making this a vaccine? We never developed a vaccine for SARS. Right? There's so many other little things we've had that have come along over the years, some of which came from China, that just kind of went away. And we never developed a vaccine for those. So why this? Why, why a vaccine? I actually, some of them, I should say, we are actually working on vaccines. But, but you get my point. Like, why, why is this, quote unquote, demanding a vaccine? Why do we need a vaccine to reopen? I think it's actually more about psychologically placating people to, into thinking it's safe to go out. Not that the vaccine wouldn't be effective. This isn't a statement on vaccines. So calm down. <laughs> I know some of you out there just got super upset. I'm saying that it's about consumer confidence, just like I kind of think an aspect to the tracing, while absolutely there's a medical aspect to it, and a scary privacy aspect, which bared out recently. Maybe that's for a future show. But I think there's also a psychological aspect to it. Listen to this clip and tell me if you don't kind of get the sense that part of the vaccine story is about making people feel safe about going back to large groups of people. But we're really not talking about necessarily treating a student who gets ill, but how the student will feel safe 
in going back to school. If this were a situation where we had a vaccine, that would really be the end of that issue in a positive way. But as I mentioned in my opening remarks, even at the top speed we're going, we don't see a vaccine playing in the ability of individuals to get back to school this term. What they really want is to know if they are safe. And that's the question that'll have to be due with what we discussed earlier about testing. So if you're getting worked up, if you're getting concerned or whatever about the vaccine for corona, keep in mind that part of the discussion right now and why it's getting so much attention is to give people confidence. Don't panic. Remember that everything is sort of a little less grandiose than they talk about right now. Do you get what I mean? It's important to talk about the vaccine. It's important to talk about tracing right now because we need to make sure people feel safe and politicians need to be seen doing the right thing right now. That's it right there, too. They need to be seen doing the right thing so that way when it comes time for election, their opponent can't slam them. And if you don't think it's about elections and fundraising, then you haven't been paying attention long enough. Don't worry about it too much. That's what I'm trying to say. They'll work on a vaccine, but just don't worry about it too much. It's going to be okay. It'll get tested. People will use it. If there's issues, they'll fix it. And I bet if you really hate it, you won't have to get it. I, I, think, I think so. The tracing stuff, I may eat my words on all of this, actually. If it goes down the way the tracing's going down so far, I may eat my words on all of this. Now that I think about this, I think I need to put together another episode explaining to you all about what's going on with tracing. Of course, there's been vulnerabilities on the Android side, but there's also the number one thing that I was concerned about is how that whole isolation thing will work. And that I think is worth talking about more. I'll see if I can't dig up some audio. If you have audio on contact tracing, please share it with me on filter.show slash discord. I'd like to put together another episode. If I can get enough clips, I'll put together one, an episode about this sooner than later. Uh, otherwise, I may just see what I can get and just try to include it in the next episode. Let's actually, you know what? <clears throat> this would be a good point to stop and actually just talk about the show. Let's do a little mini show inception. <laughs> That's just a little one. You know, it's not a full inception. Uh, <laughs> I got to say thank you. We had a tremendatastic response to the soft launch of the Patreon. Thank you, everyone, so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I felt I felt so motivated to get the show going again, and I think the number one validating thing since the relaunch has been those of you who have shared the show with people. Those of you who have sent me a note thanking for the show to come back, and now the third wave of this has been the response we've gotten on Patreon. Um, it's a good start. Thank you so, so much. I did get one person who canceled their patronage, and they sent me a note in the feedback, and I actually think it's worth discussing here because there's kind of an elephant in the room, and I want to talk about it. They said, and I quote, the new version is politicized and is giving equal weight to facts and right-wing propaganda. The bell was added by me. Let's break this down for a second, because I love this comment. This is exactly the type of person who I don't think should probably be supporting Unfilter on Patreon right now. I mean, <laughs> I guess I'd love them to, because uh, a man's got to feed his family. But I, I don't think it's a good return on their value. And I want people who find a good return on their value to be patrons. But the new version is politicized. 
We'll stop there. This isn't a politics show. I know, I know that sounds ridiculous for me to say that. But this is not a politics show. This is a people's history show. Politics sets the agenda a lot for the conversation. And because the media plays into the political agenda, we end up talking about politics as a proxy to talk about what's going on in the people's history. But this is not a political show. And then let's go to this next part. The show is giving equal weight to facts and right-wing propaganda. I don't really know what to say to that. My intention with this show is to have a centered view and to hold two thoughts in my head at the same time and then try to convey those thoughts to the audience the best I can. I've been doing this for 15 years, so I've gotten good at that, but I'm not great at it yet. In fact, it's a skill I'm practicing even more now that the show is back. But when you take a centered view at something, you end up giving reasonable view towards the right and towards the left. And then you analyze and discuss. And in fact, I, I think one of the things that is so important about this republic is an informed public that can make decisions, i.e. voting, based on information that they have discussed amongst themselves. Bring in all of the different interests, bring in all the different parties and listen to them. But use experience, wisdom and intelligence to discuss all of it. And whittle that spectrum down to what's really going on. And in that, you have documented the people's history. And here's the great news. <laughs> I mean this. If this doesn't work for you, there are tons of one-sided, single idea at a time, left or right-wing leaning shows. In fact, that's all that's out there. This show has to stand out. If I were to go all left, or if I were to go all right... I'd essentially either be a, a copy of an MSNBC production or a Fox News production. So you understand, for survival of the show, it doesn't do me any good to become partisan in one direction. I have to give equal thought to the facts, to both the left and the right. Now, frequently you will hear me criticize Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer, you know, these kinds of people. Maybe a little more than I go after some of the people on the right. And that's simply because I'm, in a way, a disillusioned progressive. If I, when I was younger, if I was going to ascribe any political view, it would be kind of, well, be sort of, well, it was centrist, actually. I really am, I am, I am very centrist when it comes to this kind of stuff. But, but I have to say, if, if I were going to be a consultant to the Democratic Party, perhaps this is a better way to frame this. This is actually more how my mind works, to give you insight into my thought process. If I were hired as a consultant to the Democrats to help them win the next election, my analysis would be that their failure to put forward a better candidate betrays the very rot that is causing the party to lose elections. And this cycle will continue until they solve that rot. And I believe Nancy Pelosi and others are sort of the head or the peak or the tip of the iceberg, if you like, of that rot. For example, I think when you zoom in on the current election status, what you find is they're putting someone forward who is a very boring candidate. What is Joe Biden's campaign mission? What is their statement? 
I remember Hillary's. I'm with her. I remember Trump's. Make America great again. What's Joe's? Can you remember it right now as I ask you this? Don't look it up. What's Joe Biden's political statement? What's the big thing Joe is going to do year one? What is it? Exactly. That's my point. Nothing. He is the most boring candidate that I've ever seen in my lifetime. He is the status quo candidate. He is the business candidate. He is keep things the way they are that make people like Nancy Pelosi rich candidate, just like Hillary was. And interestingly, there are lots of questions about their health. They seem to have put together, once again, another campaign led by somebody who has serious medical issues that actually might make them a poor candidate, and they refuse to acknowledge them. Hillary had obvious legal issues and corruption problems. Her damn emails. But they would ignore them. But the public doesn't ignore them. Joe finger bangs somebody that worked for him, and he's been caught wet-handed. But they're going to ignore that. So I do get critical about the Democrat Party, because I think they're never going to win until they fix these problems. Oh, we could talk about the Republicans, but I think Trump is self-evident. And I think my analysis of Trump speaks for itself. And like I say, the great news is, if you don't like it, there's so many other one-sided, single-idea-at-a-time, left- or right-wing-leaning shows that you could find one. Just turn on Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, or any of them. That's not what Unfilter is. Unfilter takes a dispassionate observer's look at the human species, at you and your entire species. I don't know, maybe I came from another planet, I landed on this world, and now I'm watching you. And I'll discuss all sides of anything relevant that impacts this species' history. I am here to document it for you, fellow human. And the truth is, this show has changed. The old show came to an abrupt end because I collapsed under the workload. But this show is too important to let my poor management take it off the air for good. And I always try to learn from my mistakes. But that means significant changes to what the old show was. A lot of things have to change. A co-host, video, the length of the show, the overtime, all of it's been changed. And so far, they seem for right now to be staying that way for the foreseeable future. I think this show has to scale as its community grows. That's the lesson I have to have learned from failing to keep the show going before. If I don't, if I don't learn from that, then it'll just happen again. And I'm asking for people to invest in the future of this show without acknowledging the very thing that caused it to, to, to fall apart to begin with? That's ridiculous. That's setting the expectation differently than I set the very expectation on the people I cover in this show. That's re- I have to be accountable for the mistake made here. And that's the truth. I will always try to learn from my mistakes. I've been doing this for a long time, but it doesn't mean I have it perfect. And if I have to make changes to make the show sustainable, to make the people's history possible, I think that's what's important. Where I see this show in the overall world has changed since it was last on the air. You won't believe this, but I genuinely believe this. And I will 
try to prove it to you every single episode. This show is a post-politics show. Our problems are way too big for silly tribalism. (laughs) This show will be a people's history of world events during our time. I loved the old unfilter. I, I loved the I loved doing it live every single episode. I I don't, I don't, kid you when I say right now. Even today, when I sat down to do this episode, I thought, should I just flip it live? Should I just flip it live? I loved so many aspects of the old show. I liked that you could see the video clips of it, that the sync where we shared the files. But it wasn't sustainable. It was a wild ride of me pushing myself to the limits every single week. And when you look at the amount of time I sunk into it, it wasn't profitable. So I knew from a small business standpoint, it was ridiculous. And the other thing is it often got caught up in its own format. I've tried to incorporate these lessons into the reboot of The Unfilter Show. And I could really use your support at patreon.com unfilter. I know it's not the same show. It's a minimum viable podcast right now. But my intention is each stage that I take this show, I make it sustainable. And I hope that's understandable. And I hope that seems, I kind of hope that seems obvious, like the route I should be taking. And if, if, that, if that registers with you, I'd appreciate your support at unfilter or patreon.com slash unfilter or unfilter.show. I have it, I have it linked at the top too. That's all. I just wanted to give you that update. I think I owe you that explanation, especially now that you know you'll su- you'll support the show directly. I think uh, I, I it's the least I can do. And uh, I want to share more. There is more to share, actually, and I will try to share that as soon as I can. So just kind of keep listening, and I'll give you that update as soon as possible. But in the meantime, what do you say we start the show back up? We brought it to a full end there with a little show in- show inception, and uh, I think it's time to. Uh, Roll things. Yeah! Yeah! All right, let's talk about hospitals right now. I have a story to share with you, my friends, and we'll set a little context with this report from NPR. Here's something counterintuitive. Millions of people are being laid off. We know this. You would think that the one group that would be safe from layoffs are healthcare workers. But that's not the case. Across the country, many people who work in hospitals are having their hours cut or they're losing their jobs altogether. What is going on? NPR's Layla Fadel and reporter Will Stone in Seattle have been looking into it. Hi, you guys. Hi. Hi. Well, let me start with you. With everything that is going on right now, why would hospitals be cutting people's hours and laying them off? The pandemic has totally disrupted the business of healthcare, from big private hospitals to small community ones. You have most in-person doctor's visits canceled, and many non-urgent so-called elective procedures were stopped. Add in the fact that fewer patients overall are coming into emergency rooms, and you have a situation where hospitals have fewer patients and are losing some of their biggest sources of revenue. In fact, consumer healthcare spending fell 18% in the first three months of the year. And the knock-on effect of that is that people who work in hospitals are losing their jobs. 
That's right. Many are losing work, some permanently, others temporarily. I spoke to Sean Reed, who's an ER nurse on the east side of Washington state. Her hospital has scaled back ER staffing to the bare minimum, and they're asking nurses like her to take furloughs. Basically, if our volumes don't pick up, then we have to really look at how we're staffed. We're trying to avoid layoffs and we're trying to keep people working. And so when I look at like a nurse that we've only had for, you know, maybe a year or two who's pregnant with her third child and I know that she's going to need hours now, I'm willing to fall on that sword to make sure that she can get hours. Let's talk about this. So my neighbor is a fantastic gal. I think she's probably in her early 60s, although honestly... If it wasn't for that silver hair, you'd think she's in her late 50s. She's she's doing great. She's a widow, and her family recently moved out of Washington. And she's a nurse. And I was, I, I really was impressed when the whole corona thing came down, and she wasn't afraid to go in. I, I, I thought maybe, you know, God, I, I kind of would, I'd have a little hesitation, but... Not Eileen. She didn't have any hesitation. She was she was down to the clown. And she went in every single day fearlessly. Well, last week, Eileen's hospital furloughed her. Hospital is having a hard time making ends meet because all non-elective surgeries have been put on hold. And so the only area that has any work is the corona area, which isn't over full it's doing fine like they're they have no capacity issues there and so she's been furloughed and she just now has to sit at home by herself and it's been hard for her because her family left a couple of months ago and just about every night Eileen showed up at our door just looking for a little human connection because Now that she's not going to work, she's got no one. And she thought she'd be the last to get laid off or furloughed in this, in this, econ- in this situation. She's, she's just completely flabbergasted by it. There is an aspect to this shutdown that you're not hearing about. And this is happening. I've gotten notes from all over the country about it's first. The very first note I got was from Texas, from a nurse who was being laid off. And then I started to get more. And then it happened to my neighbor, Eileen. She's the nicest lady, too. And it, you just, you wouldn't want to see anybody in this situation. And she's taking it in stride. But it's, it's absolutely wild to be sitting across the dinner table from a lady who's a nurse at a hospital in the middle of a pandemic. And she's out of work. Can you imagine that? Can you picture that? How crazy that is? There's a lot of statistics like this that aren't really getting reported. They're not, they're not your, your regular type of statistic. They're not getting collected by some AI and then getting sorted and then putting onto a chart. We have some pretty clear data that in all of Southeast Idaho, we haven't had any deaths. In our county, we've had four cases. We don't face the same thing they face over in Boise or in Blaine County uh, here where we don't have that community spread that you're seeing over there. Richardson says the closure of non-essential businesses in Rigby, the principal town in the county, has devastated people's finances. What I hear outside of the news are stories about families that aren't able to make their payments for their car insurance, their health insurance, their mortgages. Those difficulties pile up and 
they become just as dangerous and, and fearful as the pandemic itself. And Eileen, who is at home by herself every single day, that's never going to be counted. That won't be on some Corona dashboard. And you also have to think about the hospitals. Here they are providing this critical service, our frontline workers, as politicians like to say. Here they are. <laughs> our warriors against the coronavirus. And these very doctors are struggling to keep their hospital open. How do you suppose that plays into the reporting for the corona deaths? We've talked before on this show about the reality that any death with a patient who also has coronavirus is counted as a COVID-19 death. So if they have an existing heart condition, if they have a failed lung condition, if they have some other condition that is extremely fatal, <laughs> doesn't matter, and they also have the coronavirus, which perhaps they contracted while just being in the hospital, it is counted as a COVID death. But there's a money aspect to that as well. There's a money aspect here that we don't talk about a lot. And if you're a hospital that marks a death related to the coronavirus, you make a lot more money. And if you have to put them on a ventilator, you make nearly $40,000. That's a pretty tough situation for doctors that are furloughing nurses or doctors that are getting laid off or nurses that are getting laid off. That's a pretty difficult situation. And if you're not familiar with the way most hospitals work, I'm not an expert, but I did contract for several of them because I was an IT contractor who specialized in HIPAA compliance databases. The doctors are often very intimately involved in the finances of the clinic. If they don't have ownership, they're still directly involved. And everybody makes compromises. When you're looking at laying off nurses who are pregnant or you're looking at laying off doctors who are, com who are a competitive acquisition who could go somewhere else once the market recovers, you're going to have to make some compromises. So Senator Scott Johnson from Minnesota is going to come on here with this clip and he's going to tell us just how much money they can make. This isn't a conspiracy. This is, this is just the way this has been set up per the federal relief guidelines. Hi, Senator Scott Johnson. I serve Minnesota and I represent Carver County. I'm a family physician and I'm in the trenches, if you will. Recently, I've been, if you will, accused of trying to drum up some sort of conspiracy theory because I've divulged some information that people weren't aware of. That's not who I am. So let's just step back a little bit. Let's just talk about some facts. And these are facts that a lot of times people don't understand about medical care. And I understand this is hard to talk about, but let's just jump into it. First, I want to talk about allocation. What is happening in regards to COVID-19 and allocation? Well, right now, the first chunk of money from the CARES Act, 2.2 trillion, the first chunk went out. And based on how Medicare dollars are normally distributed, New York City, New York State got a chunk of money, and so did Minnesota. If you divide that chunk of money New York got, 
by the number of COVID-19 cases they have, they ended up getting about $12,000 per case. $12,000 per case. If you divide the Minnesota amount by the Minnesota COVID-19 cases, we end up getting not 12000 but 300000 So there's an inequity there, right? But what Medicare did was they allocated and distributed the dollars based on what they've done historically. And Minnesota typically gets about 1.7%, and New York probably gets about three and a half times that based on population. What does that mean? Well, a few days later, we had both senators from New Jersey, one of the congressmen, come out and complain that that's not fair. That's not the way it should be done. They want the dollars to be distributed, especially the next chunk, which will be even bigger. They want it distributed based on the number of COVID-19 cases. Okay, that's an allocation. Here's another allocation. Hospital administrators. Hospital administrators might well want to see COVID-19 attached to a discharge summary or a death certificate. Okay. So this is the core point, although I thought the preamble to that was pretty important for you to hear. But this is the core point about why hospitals are incentivized to register COVID patients. Why? Because if it's a straightforward garden variety pneumonia that a person is admitted to the hospital with, if they're on Medicare, typically the diagnosis-related group lump sum payment will be about 5000 but if it's COVID-19 pneumonia, then it's 13000 And if that COVID-19 pneumonia patient ends up on a ventilator, it goes to 39000 How about that? Let's back this up. Let's play it again. To the hospital with, if they're on Medicare, typically the diagnosis-related group lump sum payment will be about 5000 But if it's COVID-19 pneumonia, then it's 13000 And if that COVID-19 pneumonia patient ends up on a ventilator, it goes to 39000 Aha. Uh-huh. You see, baby, this is why ventilators were such a big deal. Now, I can demonstrate those facts to you, and I've been fact-checked, and I've sent it out to different news sources. I didn't make these things up. You can get these from Medicare. The bottom line, that's another allocation. Now, physicians have gotten their undies in a bundle, and they said, you calling me a liar? No, I'm not calling you a liar. But listen, physicians, the Hippocratic Oath talks about us keeping our art pure. You and I both know that we are oftentimes in a position where we suffer a moral injury. When we have to do something that we know isn't what we really want to do with the patient. If we make a patient wait six weeks to get an MRI and we know they're hurt and we know that they're going to need surgery and we know that this is just going to expand the amount of time they're going to use opiates, we feel bad. And yet sometimes we're, we're hamstrung. Uh, the network, the insurance company, they won't let us do otherwise. The only way we can do it is if the patient pays cash and they're not in that position. That's a moral injury and that's what we do. So when someone says, I'm saying that physicians lie about the death certificate. No, I'm not. But it's just like if a hospital administrative type of person comes up to me when I've done a discharge summary and they say, Dr. Jensen, we see this patient had congestive heart failure and emphysema. But you know what? We noticed that their sodium was also a little low. Yeah, but I never had to deal with it. Yeah, but it was low, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, the medical term for low sodium is hyponatremia. So the person will say, well, if you put hyponatremia down because it was part of the equation, then the hospital get paid a little bit more. That's why United Health Group was in court, was because with the Medicare Advantage group of people, they were having people go out looking through our charts in our office to see if there were any diagnoses that we hadn't included on some of our charge tickets that they hadn't gotten into their data bank. As soon as they get those other diagnoses into their data bank, they can go to the insurance payer or to Medicare and say, see, we deserve more money because we have a more complicated group of patients. It's just how the medical system works. It's just how it works. It's unfortunate. But they got to make money. And you could easily justify it. If you close, you can't help people. 
That's Senator Scott Johnson from Minnesota. You can look that up on YouTube. There's more to that clip. I just gave you a little bit of like the most important nuggets, but I encourage you to go look the whole thing. Scott Johnson, Minnesota. I like it. He's a doctor, too, so the guy knows what he's talking about. But let's shift gears to other people that hopefully know what they're talking about. Fed Chairman Powell sat down for some tough questions from the press. And he put this whole recession really into perspective. This downturn is different from those that came before it. Earlier in the post-World War II period, recessions were sometimes linked to a cycle of high inflation, followed by Fed tightening. The lower inflation levels of recent decades have brought a series of long expansions, often accompanied by the buildup of imbalances over time. Asset prices that reached unsupportable levels, for instance, or important sectors of the economy, such as housing, that boomed unsustainably. The current downturn is unique in that it is attributable to the virus and the steps taken to limit its fallout. This time, high inflation was not a problem. There was no economy-threatening bubble to pop and no unsustainable boom to bust. The virus is the cause, not the usual suspects. Something worth keeping in mind as we respond. And now our reaction to it. And we can make it worse, we can make it better. It's like nothing else before. We can't use previous playbooks. The Fed chair was also asked about negative interest rates, something I've talked about recently on the show. And he says it's not something they're looking into. So, Adam, let me start by saying that um, the committee's view on uh, on negative rates really has has not changed. Uh, this is not something that we're that we're looking at. We chose not to implement negative rates uh, during the global financial crisis and the recovery, and instead we relied, as you pointed out, on forward guidance and asset purchases. Asset purchases when we we're when we were at the near the zero bound, and we've said that we intend to continue relying on those tools which uh, are tried. And and uh, they are now a part of our toolkit. I love that little that little transition noise. I want some cool transition noises now. All I got is the inception horn. Dang it! The Fed chair said that the evidence on negative rates is it's kind of mixed. Also, the evidence on the the effectiveness of negative rates is is very mixed. It's very mixed. There's no uh, I, there are. There's, Research that says that they've been effective, uh, there are plenty of doubters. Uh, and the issue really is the concern over, over uh, interrupting the intermediation process and uh, you know, reducing bank profitability, thereby reducing uh, the availability of credit in the economy. So it, it's, it's, not, it's, a, it's, an, it's an unsettled area, I would call, um, call it. Uh, I know that there are, there are fans of the policy, but uh, for now, it's not something that we're not something that we're considering. We think we have a good toolkit, and that's the one we'll be using. Okay. While he was talking, I got myself a cool transition so I could be as cool as MSN or CNBC. Huh? Pretty cool, right? Let's see it now. Let's see if I can use it in production because that's really what makes, although they were just kind of throwing that transition in there like crazy. I think it's pretty clear from that clip. They're not interested in negative interest rates. What they're going to do instead is use purchasing power from the printer to avoid having to do negative interest rates, which I think that's good for all of you who want to hold cash, Bitcoin, and gold. (laughs) I think you're probably going to be pretty happy about that. Now, I think the other key note here is the chairman said, we are so close to screwing this thing up really, really bad. Like, this is going to be the most prolonged recession y'all have ever seen ever. 
Good morning, Carl. Fed Chairman Jay Powell will say that the path ahead is, quote, highly uncertain, and he is concerned about, he sees significant downside risks to the outlook. He's concerned, among other things, about a prolonged recession and a possible weak recovery if the government doesn't get the stimulus and the relief correct. He says additional relief may be needed beyond that which has already been done. Concerned that liquidity problems could turn into solvency problems. Policies, he says, should be in place right now to address, quote, a range of possible outcomes. Additional fiscal support, he said, can avoid long-term damage. The coronavirus crisis, he says, raises those long-term concerns that he was talking about. The U.S. response to this point, he says, he says, has been swift and forceful. The Fed has acted, quote, with unprecedented speed and force and will use all of its tools. He cites a survey coming out from the Fed tomorrow, which shows in the month of March, 40% of households making less than $40,000 have lost a job in March. 40% of households making less than $40,000 a year have lost their jobs. Can you appreciate the scale of that? 40% of households making $40,000 or less have lost their jobs. Can you imagine? Turn out to Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, is defying stay-at-home orders, daring authorities to arrest him by reopening his California factory. California Governor Gavin Newsom is now weighing in, Matt, and Matt Gutman is near that plant in Sunnyvale, California, with the latest. Good morning, Matt. Hey, good morning, George. And Governor Newsom has said that Tesla could start production as early as next week. Elon Musk said he wants it to start now. And so Tesla has actually begun to churn out new cars, arguably becoming the nation's biggest company to openly challenge a state's authority by starting production in defiance of public health orders. This morning, Tesla, the largest manufacturing employer in California, brazenly defying the county's public health orders, saying it opened its doors on Monday after instituting some safety precautions. The company's Fremont plant has been shuttered since March 23rd. Now rows of cars, delivery trucks and workers seen at the company's plant showing the tech giant creaking back to production. I'm happy to come back to work. I think we're very well prepared. The opening comes after a days-long standoff with local leaders with billionaire CEO Elon Musk filing a federal lawsuit against Alameda County, alleging it's violating constitutional civil liberties. Musk even threatening to move Tesla's giant operations to another state. I want to make sure that we can do it, like I said, in a safe, methodical way. And tensions still running high on Monday as Musk tweeted, if anyone is arrested, I ask that it only be me. Hours later, Governor Gavin Newsom trying to defuse the situation. Yeah, listen to this. This basically sounds like he's going to convince the local authorities to play ball. I have great expectations uh, that we can work through at the county level the issue with this particular county uh, and this company in the next number of days. Why can't he talk better? Why has he got to use the wrong words so much? I know some of you, I've gotten some feedback on filter.show slash contact that I am too hard on Governor Newsom, but I don't know, man. I just can't stand the way that guy talks. <laughs> I'm sorry. I really can't. He just seems like he's trying so hard, and that 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 gets on my nerves because it comes across as so 
disconnected from the actual plight. Like you look at the the homeless situation on the coast there in San Francisco or just the outrageous prices of goods in California. And it just seems like he's so completely disconnected from the people's problems right now. And people are more concerned about real things like grocery prices. Prices at the grocery store are on the rise. They're increasing at the highest rate since the 1970s. ABC's Inez de la Cotera has more. Oh, that's not good. This morning, sticker shock at the supermarket. Last year at Memorial Day, our hamburger price was $3.99 a pound. It's going to be $5.99 a pound this year. Grocery prices jumping by more than 2.5% since April, the biggest one-month bump in nearly 50 years. 46 years to be... Accurate. And they think the trend will continue for the rest of this year, actually perhaps for 12 more months total, as the knock-on effects of the shutdown at the meat plants and all these different things begin to impact the entire pipeline of the food supply. They believe it'll have a 12-month knock-on effect. (laughs) Are you loving this? A 12-month knock-on effect and that the prices will remain high at least for a year. We're talking 2, 5, 15% increases on goods. Some will be sustainable and not so hard to take, and others will be uncomfortable. And that's not the only thing. The, today, the, top, the Fed, as I record this, but as you hear this probably in the last couple of days, the Fed housing market survey has never looked bear, more bearish than it has right now. The Federal Reserve Survey of Consumer Expectations shows that deterioration in America's view of the economy is bad. For the first time since the financial crisis, respondents to the survey expect home values to flatline over the next year. Listing prices are down across several major metro reasons, which I can confirm as I have been looking at lots recently. I've been looking at lots because I want to find a home base after this whole pandemic thing. So one of the things that's been really made clear to me is I need to have a, a home base that I own. And I'm hoping to leverage the situation. But it's when you look at the listings, you can see that they've dropped the prices when you have the, when you have the ML, MLS report. It's... It's really, it's, it's, it flat would be good. It looks like, I think, I think flat would be the best case result on home values. And I, I, I don't say that with any, with any, um, uh, I'm not excited to say that, uh, you know, I own the studio that the Jupiter broadcasting studio and, um, the value on that will not, will not increase. They're saying for at least a year. And, if you look at the loan situation right now, they're being more um, – they've raised the bar. They've raised the standard, just like what happened in 2008 the last time I was trying to buy a place. I just have a bad knack of trying to buy places. Uh, this time, I'm, I'm willing to make a down payment and I'm willing to like try to find the right kind of loan. Hopefully, being the age I am now, it, it won't be the problem because I have established credit and all that, yada, yada, yada. But you just don't know when, when the market is, is like this. You just don't know. And I don't know if I'm going to end up being able to buy this, you know, one of these pieces of land that I end up finding for my home base. I don't know because of the economy. And and the thing is, is like, is now the time to be buying? Should I wait a month or two? This kind of uncertainty will impact all consumers. I'm not the only guy with these questions right now. It's going to impact the market. And that's just there's so many areas. Another one we talk a lot about on this show is oil. And I think you're seeing the oil prices stabilize, which is good. And I wonder if it isn't a reaction to some 
military moving that's been happening recently. Check this out. The U.S. is reportedly removing Patriot anti-missile systems and other military assets from Saudi Arabia as it winds down a military buildup that began as tensions with Iran flared out last year. Yeah, that's how it's being built. This is, by the way, Al Jazeera. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if it had more to do with the oil negotiations. Uh, this is all coming from the Wall Street Journal. Among the facilities affected will be Saudi oil installations. Remember the U.S. To- yeah, they're just removing the military from the oil installations, but it's totally about Among Iran. the facilities affected will be Saudi oil installations. Remember, the U.S. deployed more assets there after an attack on Saudi Aramco uh, oil plants last September. Dozens of U.S. military personnel will also be reassigned. Hmm. Hmm. I wonder if that has something to do with the recent stabilization of oil prices. And if that wasn't the extra card beside tariffs that Trump was playing with. All I know is I was hoping for the oil to get a little cheaper here in Washington. Some of the cheapest places I go still around here. Right now, as I record this, $2.30-ish cents. You, at the rarest station, can find it in the 189 range, $1.89. That's the lowest it's gotten here anywhere. And that's like the, the iffy gas, you know, like maybe they cut it with water gas. <laughs> but the uh, not-so-iffy gas, they're not really getting below $2.30 a gallon. So, Yeah. I guess uh, I guess now all I have is the uh, the increase in price to look forward to. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe not. You never know with these kinds of things. Just like you never know what Joe Biden's going to say next. Oh! But he's defending his decision to hunker down during the virus, just like you knew he would. Isn't this the brilliance of this remote campaign that Joe Biden has been leading from his basement? It's obviously the right thing to do scientifically. Well, we're on a campaign trail now. You know, everybody says, you know, Biden's hiding. Well, let me tell you something. Do people say that? Biden's hiding? Did he just coin a term about himself that people are going to use now? Well, we're on a campaign trail now. You know, everybody says, you know, Biden's hiding. Well, let me tell you something. We're, we're doing very well. We're, we're, we're following the guidelines of the medical profession. We're fo- following the guidelines of the experts, the Dr. Fauci's of the world. We're doing very well. And that, matter of fact, we're winning if you look at all the polling data. I'm not saying that's going to last till November. I don't know enough to know that. But right now, the idea that somehow we are being hurt by my keeping to the rules and following the instructions that are uh, that have been put forward by the docs uh, is as absolutely bizarre. I reject the premise that somehow this is hurting us. There's no evidence of that. I'm following the rules, following the rules. The president should follow the rules instead of showing up at places without masks and the whole the whole thing. Why, 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 you're getting nervous, man. Just calm down. It's OK. I've always said I wanted my president to be the rule follower, um, but that's his defense. And you knew he was—you knew he had that in the back pocket. That's an obvious defense. It's a good, solid defense. He's in the risk demo too, so he probably should be staying in the old basement. Don't tell that to all of the senators and your Congress critters. But yeah, I mean, it's a, it's 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 a defense, and I think it's one that will hold up. I think he's solid there. That's not what's coming for Joe. No, <clears throat> the the Biden bust. No, hmm. Okay, guys, we need a name for this. The, the Biden blow, maybe. Something, I, I want it, you know me, I like it to be alliterative. Something, something like that. This is what's coming for Joe Biden. This Michael Flynn stuff. Yeah. All of this Michael Flynn stuff you've been hearing about recently, and, and just to recap, 
um, super briefly, Michael Flynn appears to be off the hook. Just then this afternoon, the Justice Department is dropping its criminal case against President Trump's former national security advisor, retired General Michael Flynn. Flynn, as you may recall, was charged with lying to the FBI about his contacts with Russian officials. Yeah, you remember Michael Flynn, right? He's that big Russian spy. We've all been betrayed. Michael Flynn was betraying his country. Michael Flynn betrayed his country. Michael Flynn was betraying his office. Michael Flynn may have been a turned agent to Russian intelligence. Being an asset that may have been turned by Russian intelligence. Gentlemen! He has brought this on himself, just like he has brought himself um, immense shame. Michael Flynn would still be the national security advisor, and that would be the threat to national security. His first national security advisor, Mike Flynn, um, uh, may be a Russian asset. He's guilty. What Flynn did in supporting a candidate who the Russians were helping through this operation, so egregious. Uh, It's funny because it's treason. Yeah, you remember that guy, right, Michael Flynn? You remember him, don't you? The one that was the uh, asset? Giuliani said that there was a, you know, that Flynn was a perjury trap. He was still saying yeah. that yesterday. Even by the brief, you knew that wasn't true. Now we have the 302. Now we have it. Yeah, now we have it indeed. So if you don't remember, Michael Flynn was essentially entrapped. I don't say this from a political standpoint. I say it from the facts. James Comey himself will admit that he took advantage of a politically newbie group of people to set the seed to help his old boss. You look at this White House now, and it's hard to imagine two FBI agents ending up in the sit room. How did that happen? I sent them. Um, <laughs> um, something we, I probably wouldn't have done or maybe gotten away with. Soak that in for a second. Something we, I probably wouldn't have done or maybe gotten away with in a more organized investigation. This is former FBI Director James Comey. Probably wouldn't have done or maybe gotten away with in a more organized investigation, a more organized administration, in the George W. Bush administration, for example, or the Obama administration. <laughs> in both of those administrations, there was process. And so if the FBI wanted to send agents into the White House itself, to interview a senior official, you would work through the White House counsel and there'd be discussions and approvals and who would be there. He knew this White House was too politically raw. They were too new. This has been the advantage all along that they've had, is that the Trump circle isn't of D.C. They don't live and breathe these politics. They don't know how to play the games. They don't know how to make sure they document themselves on the record saying just the right thing like Obama did. He knew he could exploit that newbiness. Official, you would work through the White House counsel and there'd be discussions and approvals and who would be there. And I thought it's early enough. Let's just send a couple guys over. For no other reason than, you know what? I don't like this guy. My old boss doesn't like this guy. And they don't have their shit together yet. So let's send a couple of guys over. Be there. And I thought it's early enough. Let's just send a couple guys over. And this is what kicked off the Michael Flynn case. So you understand the problem that they have here, the shaky ground that this thing is based on. And because of the bad faith way that this was conducted, well, the judge, he says, Judge Napolitano says, that this could be really troublesome for the Justice Department. 
all the people involved in the prosecution enjoy immunity if the prosecution is in good faith. If the mm -hmm. prosecution is in bad faith, as this one was, and as the DOJ admitted it was last Thursday, then there is no immunity, which means the general could sue the government for his $6 million, $6 million plus dollar legal fee. Mm. He could also seek to have the same DOJ prosecute the people who, who crushed his civil liberties in bad faith. So there's legitimately some legal problems here. We're going to get into the intelligence aspect of this here in a moment and the precedents and the concerns that that creates, because it was monitoring of phone calls that led to all of this and caught him in the lie to begin with. But on the other side, you have Obama. His administration was actively involved in this. We'll get to that more. And he's setting the goalpost so far away, all the way over here, way over here, that now it's become a partisan issue of the precedent that it sets for the legal system versus an abuse of power and the intelligence system. And we know this because leaked audio came out in a call Obama had, and he says that it's bad for the institutional norms. That's the kind of stuff where you, you begin to uh, get worried that basic, not just institutional norms, but... Uh, our basic understanding of, of rule of law uh, is 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 uh, is a risk. Now, Obama's defense there is all in, and I think the reason why is pretty self-evident when you hear the bombshell that Senator Rand Paul dropped today. Yesterday, I sent a letter to Director of National Intelligence Rick Grinnell concerning declassification of which Obama administration officials asked to unmask General Flynn. Today I received the shocking answer that Vice President Biden and more than a dozen Obama administration officials requested and received the power to unmask General Flynn. Now this, my friends, is the big weapon against Joe Biden. This is what's going to make Tara Reid look like a cruise missile. This is the nuke to go after Biden. And I think there's a nugget here of truth that has to be listened to. This is a particularly powerful weapon in this upcoming election. And don't kid yourself. Everything leads back to the election at this point. Officials requested and received the power to unmask General Flynn during his phone call with the Russian ambassador. The fact that Vice President Biden and all of the president's inner circle, Sorry, President Obama's inner circle, individually requested to unmask General Flynn is very troubling. In addition to Vice President Biden, James Clapper, James Comey, John Brennan, Samantha Powers, and the President's Chief of Staff all individually ask to unmask General Flynn and to listen to his phone conversation. Intriguingly, a dozen more administration officials all chose to unmask General Flynn. Why is this important? Unmasking involves revealing the identity of an American's private phone conversation without a constitutional warrant to eavesdrop on that conversation. What makes this even more troubling is that this American was a high-ranking advisor to an incoming president of the opposite party. This is incredibly troubling and shock shocking 
that the previous administration under President Obama, under Vice President Biden's specific instruction, was eavesdropping on an American and an American advisor to the next president. And this is important because not only did they know at that point that he was an advisor to the next president, so that makes it political almost in its nature, but it also means that if they had national security reasons to do that, they didn't inform the incoming president, the party that would soon be running the country, of this political risk. If Vice President Biden and the president's inner circle of advisors were all listening to a senior Trump administration advisor's private phone conversation, this would amount to a serious abuse of power. The only question remains is what did President Obama know and when did he know it? Each of these officials need to be asked if and when they discuss this information with President Obama and what he advised they do with the information. The question that an FBI agent scrawled in the margin of Flynn's file should be asked of Vice President Biden. Should we try? This is coming to Biden. Is this something that Biden and the president discussed? Should they try to entrap Flynn on a Logan Act violation? Or should we try to get him to lie? If this was in the intention and this was discussed by Vice President Biden with President Obama and other high-ranking officials, this is incredibly troubling. This question absolutely must be investigated. That's why today I'm inviting the Director of National Intelligence to come to testify next week on these troubling declassified documents that now show that Vice President Biden and virtually the entire top echelon of the administration of President Obama was listening to an American's conversation without a constitutional warrant, unmasking him, and listening to a top advisor of an incoming president of the opposite party, this is incredibly troubling. So my friends in real time out there now, not people listening in the future, when you hear them talk about the rule of law and how this Flynn decision affects all of that, they're deflecting the conversation from this. And the reason why I think this is worth talking about, and Rand makes this point as well, is oversight of this kind of how we use intelligence data or how we tap people's information, especially constitutionally protected American citizens, is way more important than any single party. I think it's an, it's an amazing accusation. It is incredibly potent, and this is not going to go away quietly. But it fits into my, my point that the abuse of power in the intelligence community can happen with either party, any person, and that's why we should take away that power so no one is tempted to use that power against their political opponents. Thanks. Thank you. you guys all got copies of all yep. the stuff. <laughs> I left that little bit in there because it's just so organic. You know, as he walks away, he makes sure everybody has a copy of the documents. What do you think of that? Unfilter.show slash discord or unfilter.show slash contact. Let me know what you think of that. that I, I believe that's going to play a pretty significant role in the election, depending on where this thing goes. Yeah, maybe the Tara Reid stuff is going to go somewhere, but I don't know. I get the sense people are done with it. I mean, Nancy Pelosi, she's done with questions about Joe Erotic. Uh, I respect your question, and I don't need a, a lecture or a speech. Here's the thing. I have complete respect for the whole Me Too movement. I have four daughters and one son, and uh, there's a lot of excitement around the idea that women will be heard and be listened to. A lot of excitement. There is also due process. Yeah. 
And uh, the now there is. fact that Joe Biden is Joe Biden. Oh. It's not just a weird cut either. She just kind of rambles off right there. <laughs> now there's due process. I think there always should have been. And journalist investigations don't count. I, I don't think that's going to be a big factor, though. This intelligence abuse, what happened with Flynn, I could see them making so much hay because it plays into the entire witch hunt narrative. It, like, bookends the entire thing from Russiagate to impeachment to this. It's it's so tidy that if they don't exploit this, it'll be the biggest political oversight of this entire election. That's what I say. I say that. I mean, I might be wrong, but that's what I say. Thank you for supporting. Please do continue to support this show. Patreon.com slash unfilter. It makes all of the difference. If you found this show interesting, if it was thought-provoking or valuable, please support it at patreon.com slash unfilter. It is vital to keeping the show sustainable. Big shout out to our ever-growing community at unfilter.show slash discord. You can get this show in RSS form, so that way you just get every single episode when it comes out at unfiltered.show slash subscribe. Please go get it there. Because right now, if something big happens, I'll release an episode out of schedule, and you get it if you're subscribed. And remember, give me liberty, or give me death, as they used to say. Or right now, really, give me internet at all Netflix and chill. Thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of The Unfiltered Show. I'll see you right back here next week. I'm not going to dignify that with an answer.